Led by a 100-piece band, 1,500 cars paraded through the downtown streets of Chicago on their way to Comiskey Park on May 17, 1913. At the front of the procession was the peerless leader, Frank Chance, now the manager of the New York Yankees. It was Chance's first series back in Chicago since his untimely departure from the Cubs the previous October. At the ballpark, the festivities continued. Acrobats, jugglers, and trick dogs performed before the White Sox took on the Yankees. Illinois Governor Edward Dunn gave a speech, and Chicago Mayor Carter Harrison presented Chance with the keys to the city. 2,000 seats were reserved down the first baseline just for Cub fans to come out to support their old leader. More than 35,000 fans total showed up, the largest regular season crowd that the ballpark had ever seen. And it didn't really matter which team in town they supported. Chance got a standing ovation every time he left the dugout. For one day at least, there were no Cubs or White Sox fans. All of Chicago embraced a local legend. I'm Terry Bonadonna, and on today's episode of Chicago's Civil War, the White Sox established dominion over the Cubs as the West Side Club's front office squabbles get in the way of their play on the field. And a rival league pops up to challenge baseball's status quo, bringing with it a brand new ballpark on Chicago's north side. Stick around. A large crowd of baseball fans gathered at the train station to bid Frank Chance farewell as he departed Chicago a week after the 1912 City Series. I have nothing but a kindly feeling for the baseball fans of Chicago, he told the adoring crowd. I feel that the fellows who played under me are my friends, and that Murphy alone is my enemy, so I guess there is nothing to regret. Murphy had made a great many enemies in his final few years in Chicago, and the results on the field were a product of that. From 1911 to 1916, the Cubs' annual win total decreased every year. In 1915, they finished with a losing record for the first time in 13 seasons. The days in which they dominated the National League were growing distant in the rearview mirror, and throughout most of the decade, their postseason aspirations were in beating the White Sox, not winning the world title. Murphy added fuel to the local rivalry's fire when he criticized the Sox's preseason routines. Now I know I'm right, was White Sox manager Jimmy Callahan's response. The results of the last two City Series prove it beyond dispute. But he didn't stop there. Regarding Murphy, he elaborated, I don't like the way he treats his public, I don't like the way he treated Frank Chance, and I don't like him personally. Just another name on Murphy's always expanding enemies list. While the Cubs were just getting used to their new mediocre reality, the White Sox had grown accustomed to being a middle-of-the-road franchise. By 1913, the old guard was mostly gone. Ed Walsh was still around, but was ineffective after the 1912 City Series. Doc White scarcely pitched for the Sox over the last two months of 13, and retired at season's end without appearing in a City Series game. He finished with 159 wins over 11 years with the Sox, and he set a major league record that stood for over 60 years when he threw five consecutive shutouts. He also won three career City Series games and one in the 1906 World Series. By the time the Cubs and White Sox squared off in October of 1913, no one else was left from the Sox's championship roster of just seven years earlier. Charles Comiskey instead was intent on building a new contender, and a few key pieces were already in place, including Eddie Seacott, Ray Schalk, Buck Weaver, Reb Russell, and Shane O'Collins. The Sox added another big name when they signed minor league hurler Red Faber in August, but he wouldn't make his big league debut until the following spring. On September 23, 1913, Cubs Secretary Charles Thomas and White Sox Secretary Harry Grabner met for the ceremonial coin flip to determine home field advantage for the upcoming series. 
Grabner called heads, the coin came up tails, and the series opened on October 8th at Westside Park. Ed Walsh had been the driving force in the last two White Sox wins over the Cubs, so there was some doubt about the Sox chances with their erstwhile ace down with an injured right arm. In his place, rookie Reb Russell started the opener. Russell had an extra reason to try to dispatch the Cubs quickly. He was engaged to be married, but unlike Joe Tinker, who had marred the inaugural City Series ten years earlier with his wedding, Russell and his bride hadn't yet set a date. They agreed to wed on the night after the City Series concluded, whichever night that may be. Russell did his part in Game 1 to make sure that the wedding would come up soon, outpitching the Cubs' Larry Cheney for a 6-4 win. The Cubs came storming back by taking the next two. Hippo Vaughn went the distance in a 13-inning Game 2 win as catcher Jimmy Archer came up with the game-winning hit. Then it was all Cubs in the third installment. An 8-0 trouncing led by Wildfire Schulte's three hits put the West Siders in the driver's seat. Alas, that was the last time they were. Eddie Seacott evened up the series in Game 4, throwing a complete game and pounding out three hits in a 5-2 White Sox win. Then the Sox got a big boost from Shano Collins in Game 5. He had four hits, including an 11th inning RBI single that snapped a scoreless tie. By Game 6, the Cubs were out of fight. The Sox won an easy 5-2 decision, and one year after taking the final four games of the series, they won three in a row to beat the Cubs in six games. The White Sox third straight City Series victory. Even though neither team had been in their respective pennant race, the 1913 City Series drew unprecedented attention. The games averaged crowds of over 26,000 fans for a pair of teams that averaged roughly 7,000 during the season. Hundreds more camped out around the parks just trying to be part of the festival, with many climbing trees to try to get some view of the action. Local newspaper offices were inundated with thousands of phone calls during the day from fans looking for any sort of update. Baseball fever was rampant in Chicago, and suddenly there was a legitimate question about whether the town could support another team. Enter the Federal League and lucky Charlie Wiegman. The Federal League did start in the same spirit that the American League had started, which is basically to say there are enough players and there's enough fans uh, to support another league. That's the voice of longtime sports writer Sean Devaney. He wrote the book on the Federal League. Well, he wrote a book on the Federal League. In the early part of the 20th century, it wasn't uncommon for new minor leagues to pop up and occasionally even challenge major league teams for popularity, all while working under the umbrella of organized baseball. For a while, the American Association was the biggest minor circuit in the Midwest. Then, in 1913, along came the Federal League, which was willing to challenge not just American Association markets, but big league markets as well. In their initial season, the Federals placed a team in Chicago, which played on the north side field that belonged to DePaul University. After its first season as a minor league, the owners voted out the league president and voted in Chicago native James Gilmore, an ambitious man with money and a very persuasive pitch to investors. Wiegman was quickly spotted as a potential owner. Lucky Charlie Wiegman was the consummate Chicago story. He had come from Indiana after the World's Fair in 1893 with a big dream. Uh, winds up waiting tables uh, uh, at King's Restaurant, which is popular places uh, uh, in the loop. He's waiting tables, saves up his money, starts his own restaurant, starts a chain of lunchrooms, and becomes very successful. And 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 so everybody loved Charlie Wiegman's story, and 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 he played up on that quite a bit uh, and became a pretty popular figure. Really just the antithesis of what Charlie Murphy was uh, on the west side for the Cubs. With Wiegman and a few other big bankrolls secured, the Federals took the next big step and declared that their league was a major league, a rival to the American and National. 
It was an audacious claim, one that hadn't been made by an outlaw league since Ben Johnson's Western League became the American in 1900. For Gilmore and company to make their claim legitimate, it was crucial that they field a product worthy of being called major. As ever, Chicago quickly became the hub of activity. Star shortstop Joe Tinker wasn't with the Cubs in 1913. He had been traded to the Cincinnati Reds, where he assumed the role of player-manager. The year didn't go well for the first-time skipper as the Reds finished in 7th place, 25 games under 500, and Tinker was let go at the end of the season. At the age of 33 and with a disastrous resume as a manager, he had some baggage. But 1913 also turned out to be the best offensive season of his career, and he was still a star with drawing power, so he became a highly desired free agent. Tinker still had a home in Oak Park, a suburb near Chicago, and several business interests outside of baseball in Chicago as well, so a return would have been welcome, just not with the Cubs. He hated Murphy, and it would have been hard to picture him playing for his longtime enemy Johnny Evers, who was now the Cubs' manager. That's when Gilmore and Wiegman swooped in and offered Tinker a huge contract, worth more than twice what he had made in even his best years with the Cubs. He was given the opportunity to run the show in Chicago as player-manager, and his friend and ex-teammate Mordecai Brown was given the same deal in St. Louis. The Federal League had its marquee names. As Tinker went to work building a team to play in Chicago, his new owner, Charlie Wiegman, set out to construct a place for them to play. The site of his new ballpark was a lot that formerly housed a Lutheran seminary on the corner of Clark and Addison on the city's north side. The north side was very slow to develop, but at the same time, that meant that you had uh, available tracts of land that, 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 that you could buy. And, and indeed, there was uh, uh, an effort on the part of the American Association. They purchased a piece of land on the north side with the intention of building a ballpark and hoping to, to have the American Association be the, the team that came in and, be the, uh, and could be that third league. Uh, that never came to fruition, but that tract of land was held for a while and eventually wound up becoming the spot where Wrigley Field was built. Neither the Cubs nor the White Sox were thrilled at having another rival in their city, but Charles Comiskey, for one, backed off when he recognized that at least Wiegman had set up on the opposite side of town. At the time, Comiskey was one of the most popular men in Chicago, so Wiegman was smart not to butt heads with the White Sox owner. The two remained on good terms, as it was generally understood, at least at first, that White Sox players were off-limits as the Federal League did its best to raid Major League talent. With the 1914 season approaching, as the new ballpark was under construction on the north side and Tinker continued to build his roster, Charles Murphy kept locals focused on his team. As usual for the embattled owner, it wasn't in a positive way. In early February, just a week before the start of spring training, Murphy let the media know that Johnny Evers would not be brought back as manager for the upcoming season. As was his want, Murphy failed to tell his manager first. The move being made so close to the start of the season was stunning, though Murphy had dropped hints throughout the offseason that he was displeased with his manager's performance in the City Series, blaming Evers for the loss to the White Sox. As he did with Frank Chance, he also maintained that he hadn't fired Evers at all, but that the manager had resigned. Not true, claimed Johnny Evers. He had simply made a very common threat to hold out if his contract wasn't reworked. What was more, the unseated Cub boss avowed that the real reason he was fired was that Murphy was still upset with him for socializing with the opposition. Evers and White Sox skipper Jimmy Callahan, along with their wives, had eaten dinner together after the City Series finale the previous fall, which didn't sit well with Murphy. Whatever the true reason, Murphy found someone he liked better, and a Chicago native to boot. At the same time that Evers' dismissal was announced, the Cubs named their new manager, 
Hank O'Day. If that name sounds a little familiar to you, you may want to go back and re-listen to last week's episode. It's okay, go ahead, I'll wait. Alright, welcome back. That's right, O'Day already had left an indelible mark on Cubs history when, as the umpire, he made the call on the infamous Merkel's boner play that helped the Cubs win the 1908 pennant. Now he would get a chance to take an even more active role in Chicago baseball history. In those days, it wasn't uncommon for umpires to become managers. O'Day, in fact, had previously had a one-year stint with the Reds. The Cubs may have been settled with their managerial choice, but the whole affair drew plenty of attention around baseball. Frank Chance used the opportunity to knock his former boss, calling Murphy a menace to organized baseball. Van Johnson, the most powerful man in the sport, stated that the American League was tired of his blunders and called for him to sell the team. Murphy fired back. I'm going after that big Van Johnson for conspiracy and slander. Be sure to get those words. There's a suit of clothes in it for every fellow who gets them in the paper. Apparently, reporters continued to go around naked because nobody actually did print those words. Your guess is as good as mine. Murphy continued, He's a big, arrogant, four-flushing, double-crossing Ben Johnson is a bad man to have in baseball, and I'm going to try to put him in the penitentiary. Murphy then completed a trade that sent his former manager, Johnny Evers, to the Boston Braves in exchange for two players. But Evers refused to go if it meant that Murphy would get anything in return. The rest of the National League owners agreed, forcing the Evers move to Boston without the Cubs receiving any compensation. They further gave Evers a huge bonus. The NL bosses knew that it was important to keep him happy to ensure that they didn't lose him to the Federal League. That was the root of the whole uproar. At a time when the established major leagues were searching for good PR to drown out any noise from the upstarts, Charlie Murphy was giving them enough bad press to last the whole year. Van Johnson threatened to break the national agreement if the NL didn't do what was necessary and force Murphy out. Johnson had been at the forefront of the fight to stomp out the Federal League. Perhaps he had forgotten that this was exactly the way his own league had come to prominence. More likely, he remembered, and that's why he was so scared. The National League ultimately complied with Johnson's wishes and forced Murphy to sell his stock in the team to Charles Taft. Taft had been an original investor with Murphy back in 1905 when he bought the team, and he complied with the apparent Chicago law that all local baseball owners must be named Charles. But he lived in Cincinnati and wasn't particularly interested in running the Cubs. That allowed Murphy to continue pulling the strings from the shadows. He was out of the spotlight, though, and that would have to do for now. Once the 1914 season got underway, player squabbles were largely pushed to the side until the next year, and the Federal League got a chance to play for the first time in their brand new ballpark, Wiegman Park. The park, which was designed by Zachary Taylor Davis, who also designed Comiskey Park four years earlier, was nestled tightly into the neighborhood, which meant that it became a home-run haven during an era where that sort of thing just didn't exist. According to Sean Devaney, the place bore little resemblance to the edifice currently known as Wrigley Field. It was a, a relatively small playing field. They had to uh, really wedge it in uh, in between the streets that were there. And that's something that those contours you can still see today and, and as part of uh, uh, sort of the character of the park. But other than the layout, you probably wouldn't really recognize uh, Wrigley Field for what it was. You would think, uh, uh, you know, it might be a, a, a semi-pro Type, uh, type of an operation. The Shy Feds, as they were known in 1914, had a pretty good first year on the field, finishing in second place. Federal League attendance numbers were unreliable, so it's hard to know for certain how they did, but it's clear that the extra team in Chicago cut into the Cubs and White Sox. The Southside team saw their attendance drop by nearly 30%. 
the Westsiders' numbers were more than cut in half. After the season, Joe Tinker decided his team was ready to get a bigger piece of the city action, challenging both the White Sox and the Cubs to a three-team city series. The logistics of such a thing were unclear, but it didn't really matter. Neither team even acknowledged the request, and on October 7th, as was the custom, just two teams met at Comiskey Park to kick off the series, at least on the field. Almost all of the shy feds were among the paid attendants of nearly 22,000. Prior to Game 1, the White Sox unfurled a banner that proclaimed them Chicago champions of 1913, rubbing a little salt in the Cubs' wounds from a year ago. That was the only moment of celebration for the home team that day, though, as Hippo Vaughn pitched the National Leaguers to a 4-2 win. The series turned out to be a real back-and-forth dandy. In Game number 2, the Sox scored four runs in the last two innings to capture a 5-2 victory. The next two days were tight Cub wins. Buck Weaver, the Sox leading hitter in the series, got himself tossed early in Game 3 for arguing a play at first base, and that may have cost the Sox in a 2-1 loss. Then in Game 4, the best game of the series, over 23,000 packed into Little West Side Park to see the Cubs score two runs in the ninth inning to force extra innings. Then in the 10th, after the White Sox had reclaimed the lead with a run, the Cubs hit back-to-back -back doubles into the overflow crowd. Then Tommy Leach came up with a solid line drive to bring in the winning run making a loser of Eddie Seacott, who was in his 10th inning of work. That put the National Leaguers up 3-1. It had been just two years, though, since the greatest comeback in postseason history, so White Sox fans were surely not afraid. They had no reason to be. Their pitching dominated the next two games, with Jim Scott, Red Faber, and Joe Benz combining to handcuff the Cubs and even up the series at three wins apiece. That set up a winner-take-all Game 7 at Comiskey Park. Had the game been on a weekend, it surely would have been a madhouse. But because it was a Thursday, a not quite as impressive crowd of 14,879 showed up. Still a very impressive number for a Thursday. It was the Cubs' Jim Humphreys getting the start against the Sox's Jim Scott on a damp and chilly afternoon. Sox fans were quickly silenced as a Tommy Leach walk and a Wilbur Good triple helped the Cubs to a 2-0 lead just three batters into the game. Scott was chased and Jimmy Callahan made a fast call down to the bullpen and Eddie Seacott. The Game 4 loser starred in Game 7, throwing eight and two-thirds shutout innings. On the other side, Humphreys was perfect through three for the Cubs, but his defense let him down in the fourth. A Claude Derrick error extended the inning, putting two on with two out when Brago Roth launched a double down the right field line. Two runs scored and the game was tied. Ray Schalk followed with an RBI single, and the Sox won the game 3-2. Those were their only two hits of the entire afternoon. They were enough, though. For the second time in three years, the White Sox had overcome a big series deficit, and for the fourth straight year, they beat the Cubs. Two other items of note hit the news during that series. After the second game, Charles Wiegman made a last-ditch effort challenging the winner of the City Series to a best-of-seven with the Feds, offering to donate his entire share to charity. There was still no response. The second item was when word came from Boston that the World Series was over in four straight games. Johnny Evers' Braves were world champions, and Evers was the league MVP. After the wild offseason, Boston seemed to have gotten the best of the shakeup. The ensuing offseason renewed so many of the struggles from the previous year, but this time, it appeared that the Federal League caught their white whale when Joe Tinker coaxed Walter Johnson, the best pitcher in the game, to come to Chicago. By the way, I didn't mean that whale bit as a pun, but the Chicago Federals did rename themselves the Whales for the 1915 season. Finally, the league had landed the superstar that might just turn around their fortunes for good. Or so it seemed. 
Washington Senators manager Clark Griffith, the former Cub and White Sox, traveled to Johnson's home and convinced him to come back to Washington. That forced the Federal League to file a lawsuit against organized baseball. Ostensibly, the issue was about an American League team stealing Walter Johnson back from the Federal League. Really though, it was about the legality of the reserve clause, the contract stipulation that bound a player for life to whatever team originally signed him. If the Federal League won their case, the business of baseball would never be the same. The case was presented to Chicago judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, a noted baseball fan who was often spotted at ball games in the city, including frequently at City Series games. It was not resolved before the season, so in 1915, Johnson pitched for the Senators. From the start, the Federal League had captured the spotlight by being an unapologetic outlaw. They were trying to prove that they could compete with the American and National Leagues, but on at least one topic, they were totally in sync their unabashed racism. The Cubs and White Sox completely ignored Tinker and Wiegman when they offered challenges, but the Wales bosses were just as silent when they received an offer at the end of the 1914 season from Rube Foster, the head of Chicago's preeminent Negro League team, the American Giants. In fact, there was no actual organized Negro League at the time, but the American Giants were legendary in black baseball. They took on all comers of all races and usually beat them. No official one-loss records were kept, but in 1910, Foster claimed his team went 128-6. and six. Chicago had always played a huge role in the early days of baseball, but we've got to acknowledge the bad along with the good. It was Chicago white-stocking legend Cap Anson who's largely credited with expelling black players from the game in the first place. In 1883, he temporarily refused to take the field against a team that fielded African-American catcher Moses Fleetwood Walker. Shortly after the incident, no black players remained on white professional rosters, a gentleman's agreement that lasted until 1947. Anson was hardly the only racist in baseball, and his protest did not single-handedly force the game's segregation, but he was a big star, and his voice carried a lot of weight. The city of Chicago was also home to perhaps the greatest figure in all of black baseball. Andrew Foster received his famous nickname in 1902 when he outdueled A's legend Rube Waddell and stole his name. From then on, he was Rube Foster, a star pitcher who soon became a star manager and owner. He came to Chicago in 1907 when Frank Leland signed him to his Leland Giants. Foster quickly rose to the position of manager and soon after took over ownership of the team. From 1910 through 1919, the team, which was rebranded the American Giants, won the colored championship in all but one year. After each season, Foster would challenge the Cubs and White Sox to a true city championship series. Each year, the teams ignored it. Leslie Heafy is an associate professor of history at Kent State University. She's also an expert on Negro League Baseball. According to Dr. Heafy, even though it never happened in Chicago, there was a time in which white Major League teams played Negro League teams pretty regularly. That lasted really until Kennesaw Mountain Landis um, really put a, put a kibosh to that in the mid really in the mid-30s, I think, um, where he basically said, no, no, no. In Chicago, such battles weren't common. But in 1909, the Cubs did agree to a three-game exhibition series after the season was over. On the independent circuit, you would still have teams, uh, depending on the size of the communities and, and things like that, that would occasionally happen. But I guess probably overall, it's a bit of an outlier, but it's a really big outlier because it's a major league team. The Cubs took the game seriously and won all three but they were all close. Two of the three were determined by just one run. 
like the Federal League, it's hard to determine exactly how the level of play stacks up because the teams didn't play each other often enough. But I would say, based on what we do know, based on um, some of the players who are going who are playing in that time period who do go on to play in the organized Negro League and, and things like that, um, that would seem to indicate to me that the talent level was certainly of the maybe not across the board a tee to the major league level, but certainly of the federal league and some of those outlying teams that are they're attempting to bring in. And, you know, you think about somebody like um, Oscar Charleston, who's going to come along in this time period, and Pete Hill, who's now in the Hall of Fame. You've got uh, Charlie Grant. You've got Frank Grant. You've got all of these guys playing, um, which would seem to indicate that certainly on an individual level, there is a great deal of talent there. It was odd that a league like the Federal that was trying to do anything it could to have itself taken seriously in comparison to organized baseball wouldn't be willing to try something different to get a leg up, like signing some of the premier black talent that was readily available. Then again, even if it increased the league's overall talent level, signing black players may have illegitimized the league in the eyes of organized baseball, which officially wouldn't allow itself to recognize that talent. Per Leslie Heafy, that's why the interracial exhibitions eventually stopped, too. How do you, on the one hand, say there are no players that are eligible, there's no players that are good enough, and yet they're beating you? <laughs> so there, there was a lot more to lose, particularly publicity-wise and things like that, than there was to gain. After the 1915 season, the Cubs and White Sox again ignored all challengers but each other and met up for a fifth straight postseason series. Early in the rivalry, one or both teams seemed to be in the World Series every year. Now that the Cubs had come back to earth and the White Sox were still building, the City Series was truly a yearly tradition. For the first time in a long time, the Southsiders were the favorites in 15. They had won four straight as underdogs, but now they had a legitimate powerhouse brewing. In the lead-up to 1915, with the Whales fortifying their roster, the American League saw a need to ensure they wouldn't challenge the White Sox at the box office. So AL President Ban Johnson conspired with Charles Comiskey to obtain superstar second baseman Eddie Collins from the Philadelphia A's. In the largest financial deal ever made in baseball to that point, Comiskey paid the A's $50,000 for Collins. The move paid off as the future Hall of Famer hit 332 and led the league in walks in 1915. In mid-August, the Sox were already well on their way to their best record in years. That's when they pulled the trigger on another of the biggest deals the franchise would ever make. They sent three players and $15,000 to Cleveland for the services of outfielder Shoeless Joe Jackson. They ended the season on an 11-game win streak and finished with 93 wins overall, their most since 1906. Even old Ed Walsh got in on the fun. By now, his career was pretty much over, but he managed a complete game shutout during the season-ending streak. He started only three games in 1915, but won them all. On Wednesday, October 6th, in front of nearly 20,000 fans at Comiskey Park, the White Sox made it 12 straight wins when they overcame a 4-0 deficit to knock off Hippo Vaughn and the Cubs 9-5 in Game 1 of the City Series. In his first taste of Chicago Series action, Eddie Collins finished with four hits, including a double and a triple, and drove in three runs. Collins reached base twice more in Game 2, but he was just about the only guy in his team who did. Jimmy Lavender threw a four-hit shutout, and the White Sox streak was finally over. The Cubs had evened up the series at one win each. That was about the only highlight of the series for the Cubs. In Game 3, the Sox broke a scoreless tie in the eighth inning on a two-run Joe Jackson double. They turned it into a five-run rally and a 5-2 to two win. Jim Scott tossed a shutout in Game 4 to take a commanding 3-1 to one series lead. Game 5 was set for Sunday the 10th. 
It was tradition each year for the Cubs and Sox presidents to meet before the series for a ceremonial coin toss that would determine home field advantage. This year, Charles Thomas, who being the nearest Charles available at the time, was the Cubs president, won the toss from Comiskey, but elected to give the Sox home field, knowing that it would give the Southsiders the Sunday game in the bigger stadium. So in Game 5, 32,666 fans packed the park and watched the home team dominate from start to finish. They trounced the Cubs 11-3 for their fifth straight City Series win. In the five games of the 1915 series, Eddie Collins batted 533 and reached base in 15 of 22 plate appearances. In 1915, the Chicago Whales were Federal League champions, and they had bigger fish to fry than the White Sox. Charlie Wiegman challenged the World Series champion Red Sox to a best of seven and was naturally rebuffed. They just didn't want to give any air of legitimacy to the Federal League. Could there be some money made? Maybe. Uh, but in the long term, if they if they legitimize the Federal League, uh, then that would hurt everybody uh, in organized baseball, especially if it was able to go out and win some games. The wheels were starting to fall off the Federal League wagon. They weren't winning their court cases, and Sean Devaney says that the legal Michigas was starting to wear them down. If they had been awarded Walter Johnson, that would have changed everything. Uh, and I think that, that, that Landis knew that the Federal League probably legally uh, had, a, had an open and shut case and should have won. But because he had so many friends in baseball, he put it off. And, and because he knew that, that if they had been allowed to go to the trial, then it would have been really hard for him to rule against the Federal League. So, uh, so he didn't want to get involved in that and wound up delaying that trial. If that, if that case had gone to court and Walter Johnson was awarded to the Federal League, I think everything would have been different. Brooklyn owner Robert Ward had died, and that left Wiegman as the primary money man in the league. Organized baseball knew there was an easy way around him. Cubs absentee owner Charles Taft had been wanting to sell the team for two years, and Wiegman liked the idea of owning a ball club without the burden of trying to help keep an entire league afloat. A deal was arranged for Wiegman to buy the Cubs. He merged his two teams, moved them into his north side ballpark, and for all intents and purposes, the Federal League was dead. Wiegman did not have the money to buy the Cubs outright, so he lined up a group of investors, using city pride as a selling point. The Cubs' new ownership group included a who's who of Chicago magnets. J. Ogden Armour, William Wrigley, one name notably not on the list, Charles W. Murphy, who was finally, officially gone from the Cubs. The Cubs had high hopes going into the 1916 season after absorbing manager Joe Tinker and a few strong players from the previous year's Federal League champions. The season didn't go as planned, though, as they lost 86 games, their most since 1901, the year before Joe Tinker first joined the team as a player. They played so poorly at times in 1916 that Wiegman threatened not even to challenge the White Sox for the city championship if they didn't start playing like they meant it. The Sox had even higher hopes coming into the year, coming off of a 93-win season, but they foundered out of the gate and sat below 500 in late June. Then they got hot. With a nine-game winning streak in early August, they surged into first place. But despite going 63-37 and over their final 100 games, they fell just short of the ultimate prize, missing the pennant by two games. Wiegman's threat proved idle, as he did indeed challenge the Southside team to a series. In recent years, it had become custom for the previous year's losing team to issue the challenge once both teams were eliminated from pennant contention. That meant it had become custom for the Cubs to offer the challenge. Let the Easterners go ahead with their childish World Series, one local newspaper man wrote. An excitable person at a nearby desk assures us that the real excitement is to be at the Chicago City Series. 
For the first time ever, the series was split entirely between Comiskey Park and the stadium that would eventually be called Wrigley Field. But while the ballpark was a different look, the result was eerily similar. In Game 1, the White Sox stormed from behind late. They scored seven runs in the final two innings for an 8-2 victory. Jack Ness had the big hit, a two-run double. Red Faber went the distance for a Game 2 victory, and Lefty Williams, in his first and only career City Series start, did the same in Game 3 giving the White Sox a 3-0 series lead. Former Cub Wildfire Schulte watched the third game from the stands. He had been traded to Pittsburgh in July, the last remaining member of their old dynasty team. Now it was clearer than ever that those old glory days were gone for the Cubs. The Sox were so confident heading into game four that they sent their bags to the train station before the game so they'd be ready to go home immediately afterward. Manager Pants Rowland toyed with the team, warming up nine-game winner Joe Benz before the game instead of 15-game winner Eddie Seacott. Once concerns set in on the White Sox side, Rowland acknowledged the joke and started Seacott, who did just what he was supposed to do, getting a home run and three RBIs of support from Joe Jackson for a 6-3 win and a series sweep. In the series, the White Sox used just four total pitchers, Reb Russell, Faber, Williams, and Seacott all through complete games. It was as easy a series victory as either side would ever have, and the White Sox had the look of a juggernaut going forward. Next week, we don't talk very much about baseball at all, which may or may not make much sense in a podcast about the City Series. We'll see. With the Cubs' move to the north side, a geographic Chicago rivalry sprung to life. We'll explore that and more next time on Chicago's Civil War. And please remember to head to terrybonadonna.com slash city dash series for more info on this entire podcast series. <laughs>